Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, it's Amit Goyal. Well, welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics series. If you haven't already done so, I highly recommend you take a stroll through the 12 former episodes as part of this incredible series. In today's discussion, we get to learn from ACHD interventionalist Dr. Michael Luna about interventional considerations for the pregnant patient from valvular to coronary interventions. This episode was led by Drs. Laurie Femnu and series co-chair Dr. Sonia Shah. This discussion is a direct follow-up to episode 114, where we discussed pregnancy and coronary disease with Dr. Melissa Wood, and episode 158, where we discussed pregnancy and valvular heart disease with Dr. Yuri Elkayam. As you enjoyed this discussion, just remember that CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform built with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. Our education does not necessarily represent the views or policies of our employers, if you enjoy Cardio Nerds and want to support our mission, consider rating and reviewing the podcast on your favorite app. As always, see the episode description for speaker disclosures and a link for free CME credit. Before we get nerdy, here's a word from one of our sponsors who make this free and high-quality education possible. Friends, this wonderful episode is made possible with support from Panacea Financial. We're lucky to have the founder of Panacea, MedPete's faculty in Arkansas, and fellow cardiator Dr. Michael Jerkins with us. Michael, would you tell us what Panacea is and the vision behind its creation? Well, thanks for having me. I've been a proud cardio nerd for a long time myself and use these episodes to teach on rounds pretty frequently. But Panacea Financial is a digital bank that's built for doctors and doctors in training by doctors. So fellow physician co-founder Ned Palmer and I, we felt like we didn't have many fair options for banking because traditional banks viewed us as bad customers with our high debt and limited savings or income. And banks were never open when we had time off. Going back to even intern year, we had these conversations and eventually we created a digital bank that gives all customers concierge level service available 24-7, free checking nationwide, and loan options that are built just for doctors and, and trainees like our PRN personal loan that requires no co-signer to get up to $75,000 in as little as 24 hours at a rate that's less than half of a credit card. And no one should borrow more than they need, but training in life can be pretty expensive and doctors really honestly deserve a better option at financing. Well, that's just awesome, Michael. It seems to be a great resource that addresses many of the issues that a lot of us go through. But one of the reasons we're so proud to have your support is our shared mission with your foundation when it comes to promoting professional diversity and inclusion. Would you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so our profits from Panacea Financial actually fund our foundation that aims to strengthen the pipeline of underrepresented minority physicians. And this year alone, we're awarding $50,000 in grants and scholarships to medical students, residents, and fellows. Because at Panacea, we aim to make medicine better by decreasing financial stress, but also by diversifying our workforce. Congratulations to you and your team for the incredible work you all are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Cardi Nerds, to find out more, go to PanaceaFinancial.com to learn how you can join the growing number of physicians that expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC, and you can find more using the links in the episode description. Hey, Cardi Nerds. Amit and I are back with Dr. Lori Femnu and excited to continue our conversation on valvular heart disease and pregnancy. 
focusing now on cardiovascular interventions in the peripartum period. For this portion of our episode, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Luna. Dr. Luna is an associate professor of cardiology at UT Southwestern, trained in interventional cardiology with additional focus training in congenital heart disease. He specializes in congenital heart defects, heart valve disorders, and complex coronary disorders. Dr. Luna also serves as one of the supervising attending in the Parkland Congenital Heart Disease Fellows Clinic, where we have followed a number of patients with complex congenital heart disorders through pregnancy. Welcome to CardioNerds, Dr. Luna. Thank you much. It's great to be here. Dr. Luna, before we dive into a discussion, tell us, how did you develop your combined interest in interventional cardiology and congenital heart disease? Yeah, that that was a uh, complex um track for me. Uh, my interest in, in cardiovascular diseases uh, obviously began like most people's interest uh, in the field of medicine in medical school. When I made the decision that the surgical track wasn't going to be for me, uh, it was pretty clear that interventional cardiology, uh, which I had been introduced to at that point, uh, was going to be my career. Um, and so every decision after that was really geared towards interventional cardiology. And slowly, as I entered internal medicine and then general cardiology, it became clear that my overarching passion was advanced cardiac pathology, just messed up a structural heart disease in any form or fashion, coronary, vascular, and cardiac mass. That, that was what uh, tied everything together for me. Um, and uh, congenital heart disease was, you know, the, that on steroids. And, um, and that's what made it uh, fascinating to me. Um, and so, you know, during my uh, general cardiology training, I uh, decided to do individualized training um, throughout uh, that time uh, with our congenital heart disease providers. And uh, there was no formal uh, training program at our institution. And so we sort of made it up as uh, we went along and it worked out really well. After I finished two years of adult interventional uh, cardiology training, then I solidified all of that that I had learned uh, in adult land with an extra year of training in pediatric interventional cardiology uh, at our children's center and then stayed on uh, as faculty at our institution. And, and that's how really I've been able to uh, do what I do these days. So quick question. What was your PGY number when you became faculty? 45? No, I'm joking. Uh, it's uh, something <laughs> something like PGY-8. Yeah, it was PGY-8. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely appreciate your your love for complex pathology. We're planning right now our adult congenital heart disease series. And I find it so humbling because whether you look at it from the structural aspect, the hemodynamic aspect, all the rules break down. And everything I think we all love about cardiology come to the forefront. Complex hemodynamics, multimodality imaging fascinating interventions. And, you know, at the core of it, being able to offer hopefully something to the patient and improve their lives. So, you know, I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. No, the way you describe it is right on point. There's so much nuance to this field that uh, having gone through the adult training that I had, once I entered the pediatric realm, it became clear to me that I think if someone wants to have this career, it's probably impossible to do it successfully and well without having some pediatric training. This is their bread and butter. This is how you learn all the nuances that you just described. And it's just another extra step that you have to learn with respect to interventions on these patients, whether they're children or adults. One wrong decision can be catastrophic. And so you just have to have extensive experience in order to feel comfortable to do this. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So let's jump right into our discussion. So during our pregnancy and valvular heart disease discussion with Dr. El-Kayam, 
Lori shared with us a case of a 28-year-old woman with severe rheumatic mitral stenosis who presented to the emergency department at 23 weeks gestation with significant dyspnea. Medical management was attempted, but she eventually underwent percutaneous mitral balloon valvuloplasty at 28 weeks. So Dr. Lynette, can you tell us about some of the considerations for performing a mitral balloon valvuloplasty in pregnant patients? Yeah, that's that's a great case. So I've definitely had experience taking care of similar patients here at our institution, uh, especially at our county hospital at Parkland. And they can be challenging for sure. I think the overarching goal and message for these types of patients and other patients with obstructive left heart lesions is that we should try to avoid at all costs invasive procedures on them and, and try to get them through pregnancy effectively with medical therapies. Obviously, there will be situations uh, where that's not possible and, and some intervention will be required. And so the drivers for considering interventions are really a heart failure, as we all know. People who get in trouble with pulmonary edema, that progressing to pulmonary hypertension, especially in the setting of then concomitant right ventricular uh, systolic dysfunction, can have significant issues with heart failure control, can be very symptomatic, that can also lead to arrhythmias. And so all those consolation of things, whether it's the usual atrial fibrillation in the setting of mitrosinosis, pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary edema, heart failure symptoms, or right-sided atrial arrhythmias from pH and right heart dysfunction are going to be the big drivers that lead to pushing you towards an intervention in these patients. Now, if it looks like you have a patient who has any or some of those, uh, some of them can be abated with medical therapy even, right? For example, atrial fibrillation may be effectively treated medically, and that may be all you need in the absence of pulmonary hypertension to get them through pregnancy and avoid having to expose them to an invasive procedure. And so I think those interventions and being careful and thoughtful about each decision with respect to medical therapy is key before pulling the trigger and moving towards an invasive procedure. Now, when we start thinking about actually performing these procedures in these women, then there are a lot of nuances with the procedure and the intervention that need to be considered. That will involve the obstetrics team, cardiac anesthesiology, and then we may need a, a cardiac surgeon involved in the case as well, right? You need to be at a place where you are ready to do a, a variety of interventions if things go awry. If there's some issue with respect to a cardiac complication, right? Perforation, acute MR in the setting of, of balloon valvuloplasty, those sorts of things where the obstetrics team would have to immediately perform cesarean section and that they can do that effectively and quickly. And then in cases of uh, dramatic hemodynamic collapse during or after an intervention, that you need to be prepared for advanced mechanical support for those situations, including uh, full support with ECMO. And so all those nuances really need to be prepared for before moving forward and actually doing the procedure itself. Great. Thank you for that. Just other consideration when planning these procedures. I know for a non-pregnant patient, we rely on the Wilkins score and to decide whether or not a procedure is going to be successful. But for pregnant patients, our threshold for performing a percutaneous bibloplasty may be lower just because of the higher risk for surgery. So can you tell us a little bit about Wilkins score and maybe the optimal timing for such procedure? 
Yeah, absolutely. That, those are great points. Obviously, the anatomy of the mitral valve uh, is key in any patient and most important in a patient who is pregnant just because of the consequences of having a complication from valvuloplasty. And so the Wilkins score, as everyone knows, is really an echo score that gives us an idea of how pathologic the entire mitral valve apparatus is. That includes the mitral annulus, the, the mitral leaflets themselves, the subvalve apparatus, uh, and that the, the score takes into account the mobility of the leaflets themselves. It takes into account the thickening of the apparatus involving specifically the valve leaflets and the subvalve apparatus, and then the calcification of the valve as well. And so the basic principles uh, include mobility involving the entire leaflet. So if you have very mobile leaflets and only the tips are restricted, then that tends to be a, a good valve for a uh, valvuloplasty, as opposed to a leaflet that is almost completely stuck in place. Okay, that tends to be a bigger risk for causing tearing and then consequential uh, mitral regurgitation. And then, of course, if you have thickening or calcification of the valve tips, but not the body of the leaflet, then those tend to be better than having diffuse calcification or diffuse thickness of the leaflet itself. And then with respect to the subvalve apparatus, the more thickening and shortening of the subvalve apparatus towards the papillary muscles, the worse the, the risk of a subsequent MR. And so that's how we handle the Wilkins score. And as an interventionist doing these procedures, you have to be savvy with uh, echo interpretation so that you assess the valve yourself with respect to all these characteristics and the predictability of a good result with mitrovalvuloplasty. So that's overall idea with respect to the Wilkins score. Now, there are other considerations in the lab when we're doing these procedures on uh, pregnant patients, right? And you have to have all your teams in play and you have to have the understanding of potential complications, including cardiac arrest and how the whole team as a one organization will immediately respond to that situation. You have to have very specific goals and assignments set for each specific staff member in the lab. For example, obviously, because I take care of patients with cardiovascular disease in pregnancy and am also a congenital heart disease expert and an interventionalist, I feel comfortable guiding all of this. But if you happen to be an interventional cardiologist who doesn't have a congenital heart disease expertise or cardioobstetrics expertise, then you may need a separate cardiologist with those experiences to guide these steps. But one important thing, for example, is in the lab, you should, before you start a procedure, make assignments with respect to the cardiac arrest situation. Uh, a big consideration would be aortal cable compression, which happens with the gravid uterus. That's a big consideration, not only in a hemodynamically compromised patient, but also important in a patient who has cardiac arrest. A lateral uterine displacement, for example, is going to be very important to understand and to effectively administer in a patient who needs a quick resuscitation, especially including compressions. And so, for example, a, a lady who has significant hemodynamic compromise but is not arrested, we can perform a positioning of the, of the entire patient in a left lateral position to displace by gravity the gravid uterus off of the IVC and the aorta, and most importantly, off the IVC to allow more free IVC return to the 
the heart and, and try to improve overall forward stroke volume. In, in a respite patient where chest compressions are required, the current recommendation is to keep that patient supine. And so what has been shown is that effective chest compressions can't really be performed in a left lateral position. And so really the recommendation uh, right now is to keep the patient supine due effective chest compressions on a hard surface, just like any non-pregnant patient, but then to have a staff member perform lateral uterine displacement. And that can be performed from the right side of the patient with a pushing force or from the left side of the patient with a cupping of the gravid uterus and then lifting superior and leftward off the IVC and aorta. Okay. And so those little details have to be planned out in the cath lab or in the operating room where we decide to perform this procedure or or any procedure on a pregnant patient. Down to the detail of where will that nurse or physician be placed to perform lateral uterine displacement in that situation. Obviously, the vast majority of cath labs, for example, are structured in such a way that the physician and uh, other operators are on the right side of the patient. And so it it, uh, will not be doable to have a person perform forming lateral uterine displacement on the right side of the patient. And so that person who is planned and assigned to do that will have to be on the left side of the patient and be told exactly where to stand and be protected with lead and what have you. So there are details like this that I think need to be known and need to be planned ahead of any of these procedures in order to be successful with your outcomes in case of a horrible complication. Another one is access for quick resuscitative medication administration. For example, if a patient comes in with arrest and is pregnant, intraosseous in lower extremity accesses are very common, as we all know, right? Well, that is not the best uh, approach for this type of patient because of the potential compromise of IVC flow to the heart. And so if you want to get effective drugs quickly to the heart, you really need to have a venous axis above the diaphragm, right? So a jugular vein, a subclavian vein, upper extremity of venous peripheral catheters, uh, that sort of thing. And so again, those sorts of things when a patient is electively getting planned for procedure can be easily accomplished, but in a resuscitating patient coming in after cardiac arrest, those things need to be on the forefront uh, of people resuscitating those patients. Dr. Luna, I have a a quick but important follow-up. You're talking about the contingencies that we need to consider here, and specifically, you know, with regards to cardio-obstetric patients. I'm learning that good interventionalist hopes for the best, but definitely plans for the worst. Yes. God forbid a patient does arrest in your cath lab who is pregnant. Do you also plan the contingency for a postmortem cesarean, you know, which again, at at least outside the cath lab, we think the guidelines would recommend that to happen no later than four minutes after arrest. Do you have a similar approach with your uh, obstetric colleagues when a patient is going to the cath lab? That's a great question. And yes, these conversations, at least with our experience here, are had in excruciating detail ahead of of these sorts of procedures, right? And they occur with those of us who are in the field of cardioobstetrics and general heart disease, uh, obviously is involved a lot of times. And then the maternal fetal medicine team, cardiac anesthesiology and uh, OB anesthesiology, right? There are different teams that come together in a lot of these situations. And as I mentioned earlier, having a cardiac surgical backup may be required in certain situations. And so they come to the table as well when needed. But those things are absolutely planned out. And as a follow-up question to that as well, what do you feel is the optimal timing to perform a balloon valvuloplasty, for example, in patients? Is it 
kind of earlier towards a first or second trimester or later in their third trimester? Or is it purely based on how the patient is doing clinically? It's a great question. The consideration is an important one. Obviously, the patient and uh, the situation will drive your decision a lot of times, right? And if you're in a situation where things are progressing rapidly from a clinical standpoint with clinical congestion that is difficult to manage before the 20-week mark, you may have to just bite the bullet and do it. But the 20-week mark becomes an important one with respect to fetal development, right? And if we can avoid doing anything before that, then we'd like to. And that's an important roundabout date for us when we're considering these patients. But again, there have been situations where we're forced to do something earlier than that or have the, the difficult and unfortunate conversation of termination of pregnancy, which is always a very challenging one to have. Thanks for that, Dr. Luna. We're talking about all of the nuances and decision-making that go into taking care of a pregnant patient with valvular heart disease who's potentially planned for an intervention. But it sounds like the initial and most important decision up front is whether or not to pull the trigger to take them to, for a procedure in the first place. A decision clearly not to be taken lightly, given all the considerations and contingencies we're talking about. Looking at the guidelines, the AHA, ACC, ESC, CardioB guidelines all recommend considering percutaneous mitral commissurotomy in patients with mitral stenosis, with severe symptomatic heart failure or significant pulmonary hypertension despite optimal medical management. So they failed medical management but continue to have symptoms and or the hemodynamic consequences. So we've talked about how pregnancy oftentimes comes with a lot of symptoms that can be confused for heart failure to begin with. And Talking about the hemodynamic consequences, we may not be able to estimate the pulmonary pressures very well from transthoracic echo. So when do you find the need to go a step further and potentially do invasive hemodynamic assessment, right heart catheterization to better define hemodynamics for that decision making, especially when considering the risk of vascular injury with increased vascular friability in a pregnant patient? Yeah, that's a great question. I've had to perform quite a few invasive hemodynamic procedures on, on pregnant uh, patients. And those considerations are important for sure. I think making that decision can be a little challenging, uh, right, when you're considering uh, potential complications. But when you need them, you need them. And the one situation I'd say in the patient with severe mitral stenosis is when you get a patient who has some shortness of breath, during pregnancy, and perhaps it's difficult to distinguish whether that's related to uh, heart failure or um, the breathlessness that uh, pregnant women can have sometimes, right? Maybe there is a difficulty in assessing a patient's pulmonary artery pressures or estimating them by chest wall echocardiogram, right? In a patient with insufficient tricuspid regurgitation, that might be a scenario where you just don't know how the patient's uh, pulmonary pressures or pulmonary arteries are reacting with respect to elevated pressures. And so if you have a pregnant woman who tells you that she feels breathless, but doesn't have a lot of swelling, you don't hear frank pulmonary edema, but gradients are quite high across the mitral valve, right? You have a dilated left atrium, uh, a setup for someone who uh, could develop pulmonary hypertension as a complication. That might be someone where the information, the invasive information that we would get with hemodynamics would be useful, right? In guiding our observation of the patient, our planning of the patient. So that would be someone that we would consider. 
Now, how we take care of the actual procedure, as I said, I've, I've done it multiple times and the vast majority of them can be done without any radiation at all. And obviously we would do the procedure through and above the diaphragm venous axis. The usual one that we would use is the jugular venous approach, which can easily be visualized with ultrasound and can easily be cannulated. And you might alter if you are one, as I am, who uses a lot of 18 gauge to access vessels, you might alter that approach in any pregnant patient and use a micropuncture needle, for example, right? But another consideration, I think for for someone like me, I, I feel very comfortable using other vessels and, and doing both diagnostic procedures and interventional procedures through non-traditional vascular approaches. And so using antecubital venous access points, you know, ultrasound guided basilic or brachial vein access is also one that, that I do frequently. And that might be even a better approach in someone like this to avoid any proximity to a carotid artery, for example, an inadvertent puncture of, of the adjacent carotid from a jugular vein approach. And so those are the considerations. Now, from a logistical standpoint, uh, a lot of people will talk about lead covering over the woman's abdomen and placing that on the patient before getting on the cath lab table. I've done all of mine that way. Now, the, there are some considerations even with that. If you have to use radiation, remember that scatter from the x-ray can still occur internally. And so there's still some exposure when you have thoracic x-ray application to the abdomen. And, you know, with internal scatter, whether lead will block exit of those scatter waves is unclear, right? The other downside to putting lead on a patient in the cath lab is that if you happen to introduce that part of the body into the x-ray field, the x-ray tube will have to use more x-ray to penetrate the lead. And so you can inadvertently start increasing the amount of radiation use if you have the leaded segment within the the field of x-ray. And so you have to be very certain to decrease your field of view, your columnate in and and avoid introducing the leaded part of the body into the, the field of view. But I still will wrap an apron around the bottom portion of our patients that end up coming to the lab. When, when approaching these patients for invasive hemodynamics, the way I do them is with a balloon-tipped catheter. The Swangans catheter is one that most people are comfortable with and have a lot of experience with. But there are other balloon-wedge catheters uh, that have bigger lumens that actually are many times easier to use compared to the Swangans catheter. The downside is that you don't get thermodilution with those catheters. But what I do is I enter the superior vena cava with the catheter. I inflate the balloon and then using pressure tracing alone, once I've flushed the fluid filled system, using pressure guidance alone, I enter the right ventricle and I know I'm in the right ventricle based on the right ventricular pressure tracing. And once I'm there, I deflate my balloon and come back just until I'm above the tricuspid valve and into the right atrium. This gives me the ability to know where I am with respect to the right atrium and I get my right atrial pressure there. I immediately inflate my balloon and it's able to cross back into the right ventricle immediately. And then it usually crosses into the, the pulmonary arteries and, and I'm able to manipulate to wedge position very easily from there. Uh, but, but using that approach, it really provides a, a very quick way of getting hemodynamics and not having to waste time in between the right atrial pressure and the right ventricular pressure. In an ideal situation, a patient would have undergone preconception counseling with a cardiologist and an obstetrician 
with probably a planned balloon commissurotomy prior to pregnancy. But as we all know, the reality is a lot of pregnancy are not planned. And as is in the case of our patient, she didn't know she has severe mattress stenosis prior to pregnancy. So we've already talked about some of the techniques used in the lab to try to reduce the radiation like abdominal lead shielding. What are some other technical methods used to minimize radiation use and exposure in the cath lab? For example, do you use less cine and use more fluoro to reduce that? How about the angulation? Do you use lower magnet? What are some other techniques you use to, to reduce radiation exposure to the mom and the baby? Good. Yeah, we're getting to the weeds. I like it. When we're thinking about procedures on patients that will for sure require some degree of radiation, uh, all the things that you mentioned are included in our uh, process. And so for sure, avoiding angulation decreases the, the amount of radiation that you use, right? So staying in a PA view the entire time, AP as we call it, even though it's not, but uh, staying in that view minimizes the amount of radiation use, right? Making sure that your table is optimal height, that your image intensifier we call the II, is as low as possible. Collimation to decrease your field of view. Uh, all those things are important. Now, to get even more into the weeds, we tend to do, at least my procedures are done with a fluoroscopy at seven and a half frames per second and cine fluoroscopy or cine angiography with 15 frames per second, right? This optimizes the images that we get, not only with coronary angiograms, but also with great vessel angiograms or cardiac structure angiograms. And that's really the frame rate that provides that for us, but it's not absolutely necessary, right? And so for a, a pregnant patient, we would definitely alter those uh, settings. For example, we could easily drop our fluoroscopy frame rate to three and a half and get what we need with a very low frame rate like that. And you don't have to use cine fluoroscopy for anything that we would do on a pregnant patient. You can get away with storing any fluoroscopic images that you're getting. And so most modern cath lab equipment will have a stored fluoroscopy function. And in this situation, Situation, we would uh, use that for any recording of any images that, that we would want. Awesome. Those are all really important considerations. So I'd like to switch gears and um, talk about the second case that Lori shared with us, which was Miss M, a 36-year-old woman with a bicuspid aortic valve who underwent balloon valvuloplasty prior to conception and thankfully went on to have an uncomplicated pregnancy course. We touched on preconception valve management strategies with Dr. Elkayam in that discussion, including surgical replacement, the ROS procedure, TAVR, and balloon valvuloplasty. But as we discussed, it's a whole different ballgame, and the stakes are so much higher when interventions are being considered during pregnancy. So Dr. Luna, in a patient with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis during pregnancy who is not responding to medical therapy, what options do we have for management? Yeah, those are tough situations. Compared to mitral valve stenosis, aortic valve stenosis is a much more frequent lesion that we end up encountering in our pregnant population. And so we definitely have uh, a lot more experience with uh, that type of patient. And you'd be surprised. I mean, our, our personal experience here has been a good one. You know, we've been able to get a lot of uh, women through pregnancy with quite severe aortic stenosis without requiring uh, a lot of intervention. As you mentioned, there are situations where you have to move forward and do something and the anatomy is going to guide you in this situation. When dealing with uh, congenital aortic stenosis, the cusp status is going to be an important one. 
uh, in a tri-leaflet stenosis patient, you can generally get good results with balloon valvuloplasty without causing too much insufficiency in the valve. But as you go to bicuspid status and unicuspid status, and it becomes a little more challenging um, because bicuspid and, and unicuspid valves can have higher likelihoods of, of tearing and, and leading to insufficiency. And the predictability of that sometimes is, is difficult. Um, obviously, if you have already baseline some degree of insufficiency, then you need to take that seriously, especially in the setting of a unicuspid or bicuspid valve. Certainly, once you get to a level of baseline insufficiency that is uh, moderate, then valvuloplasty alone is, is not going to be a viable approach to that patient. And so then you start having to consider valve replacement options, right? And really with our transcatheter technologies, TAVR has, has taken over this space. We've not had to do that at our institution yet, but it has been reported elsewhere. And so obviously that has to be planned with our cardiac surgical colleagues, our cardiac anesthesiologists, and as always, our obstetrics team. This would, would be something that we would perform in the operating room and have every capability available for immediate intervention, both on mom and fetus. For example, emergent C-section has to be very easily accomplished in that situation, in that space. ECMO cannulation would have to be very easily accomplished in that space. And then uh, a combination of the worst outcome, right? A combination of emergent C-section and emergent surgical valve replacement has to be able to be performed quickly and effectively in that space. And so, as I mentioned earlier, Meetings, uh, including all providers in the care of these types of patients, has to be had well ahead of the situation uh, to plan every every detail and, and nuance out. You know, Dr. Luna, we're talking here about taking care of not one life, but two lives. And I'm just thinking through the steps involved for doing these valvular interventions. And of course, you know, involved is rapid pacing, cardiac standstill, so you can have stability of the annulus. And also just considering all of the other hemodynamic shifts you may have during the procedure for one reason or another. Do you normally also include fetal monitoring in the procedure lab? And with that, somebody, you know, skilled in interpreting that while the procedure is going on? Yes, Absolutely. That is an absolute for any intervention on a pregnant patient outside of a diagnostic invasive case, right? That can be done without that. But any intervention that has to occur should be done with fetal monitoring with the person interpreting that in the cath lab with live interpretation and consultation with MFM with that. And so that is an absolute necessity, especially as the complexity of the lesion increases. And so without a doubt, that would happen. Thanks. I'm sure that was a very basic and naive question for my part, but I'm just, again, I just developed this appreciation for mm. all of the nuances involved. I'd like to switch gears for a moment and talk briefly about coronary interventions during pregnancy. You know, we had a whole separate episode in this particular series dedicated to coronary complications like spontaneous coronary artery dissection, as well as atherosclerotic disease. That episode was led by Dr. Priya Kathapelli, fellow from UT Austin and soon-to-be interventional fellow there, as well as the faculty expert being Dr. Melissa Wood, the head of the Women's Heart Center at MGH. We'd like to ask you for this discussion, what are some of the things that we should know about with regards to coronary angiography and revascularization in the pregnant patient? That's a great question. And as 
both Laurie and Sonishan know we've taken care and actively are taking care of both of those varieties of patients. We have actually just recently come in contact with a 30-something-year-old who unfortunately has uh, type 1 diabetes and has developed a coronary atherosclerotic disease and had a coronary event. It was a non-ST segment elevation MI, a required intervention of her LED, a good result and has normal function. But the question posed is now, what do we do moving forward? She is desiring pregnancy and now we're in a tough situation. And obviously we have many women with uh, SCAD events that we have taken care of. And so the, the experiences are different. But the overall concern is equal in both situations. So for the SCAD patient, the effective treatment is different compared to the patient coming in with an event related to atherosclerosis. When atherosclerosis is involved, true atherosclerosis and plaque rupture, then stenting is really the definitive treatment for that patient. But with SCAD events, the vast majority of those patients can heal nicely just with balloon angioplasty or after diagnostic angiography, treating with medical therapy alone. Trying to minimize the intervention on that patient, I think, is the overarching goal. There are situations where you have complete occlusion of a vessel and you have to balloon to improve flow. But if you can do that effectively without propagating dissection and you have good risk flow through the vessel, then that should be where you stop as an interventionalist. If you don't have any experience in this, the gut reaction for an interventional cardiologist may be to just implant stent. And that can um, cause many problems, not only committing patients to antithrombotic therapies, but the actual process of inflating a middle scaffold in a friable vessel can actually make things worse. And so really that should be saved for situations where you are unable to establish adequate flow through the vessel with balloon angioplasty alone. I've done many of these and, and have had a couple of situations where I have had to put a stents in for those situations. Now, all the things that we've talked about with respect to the pregnant patient uh, go into effect here, right? So if you have a patient who is pregnant, who comes in with atherosclerotic or a SCAD-related event, or both, right? You can have a SCAD event in the setting of atherosclerosis. Then all the things that we've talked about with respect to radiation exposure go into play, but there are additional considerations. One is uh, reducing the amount of contrast that you may give the patient, right? Using, instead of angiography, guidance with intracoronary imaging modalities, for example, OCT, optical coherence tomography, or intravascular ultrasonography. IVUS, which we routinely use in our lab and can be used in place of contrast administration in these patients. What access uh, site is an important one as well, right? To avoid radiation exposure, you would preferentially approach this patient from an upper extremity approach, right? Radial. And if that is not possible for whatever reason, you can try the brachial artery before committing to a femoral arterial approach. And there can be complications, you know, in, in my personal experience, I've had patients who come in with a SCAD event also be prone to spasm. And so sometimes approaching the radio artery can be challenging, in which case you may have to um, uh, cannulate the brachial artery to complete this. But those those things are, are important considerations. Now, I'll add an, an extra wrench in this equation, and that is if you have someone who is pregnant and had a coronary event that led to cardiac arrest, right? Then all the other things that we talked about earlier become very, very important, especially because we're now moving quickly to do an emergent procedure to open up a vessel, right? So 
the the things that uh, we talk and plan out now have to be executed very very quickly. I can envision that scenario where an interosseous um, access is is placed in in a thirty something week gestational patient, and so that should be not the optimal approach for for administration of our medications. Right, well, all those things have to be very clearly dictated by the operator in these as expected chaotic cases, so that we set ourselves up for a good outcome in in those patients. Great. Thank you for all that information, Dr. Luna. Before we end our discussion today, I wanted to come with our last case we discussed. So this case was a 32-year-old woman who presented at 37 weeks with what appeared to be acute severe MR, for whom we considered mechanical support if medical management did not improve her clinical condition immediately. Thankfully, this is not something that we encounter routinely in our practice, but it's something that we have to be prepared for. Can you tell us how you would approach advanced therapies, including impellas, balloon pumps, ECMO, in management of a peripartum patient with cardiogenic shock? Yeah, those can be scary uh, situations for sure. I've not personally had to deal with that situation of acute MR in the setting of pregnancy, but I've definitely dealt with it in the setting of uh, a non-pregnant state. And you can have significant hemodynamic collapse in in those patients since you can imagine having the extra volume load from pregnancy might not be well tolerated in that situation. And so absolutely, the things you mentioned are are all on the table. Uh, One you did I'll talk about. But early on, if you don't have dramatic hemodynamic compromise, then the sort of middle ground mechanical support options of balloon pump, which provides counterpulsation, and impella are probably the go-to uh, for those situations. I would say that in early shock, not frank collapse cases, counterpulsation actually can be very effective in the treatment of shock uh, with acute MR. And so that would be my go-to early on. Obviously, we would take all the precautions, but we are forced in this situation to approach the, the patient from the femoral artery. There are situations with bigger vessels, which can be limited sometimes in women, but but uh, there are approaches via the axillary artery, which we could consider. The problem is, is the movement of those catheters can come into play and potentially uh, increase complications. The preferable approach is still from the femoral artery. But, you know, if you have access and you can control uh, a device easily uh, via an axillary artery approach, then then that, that should be considered. Now, if you get into a more advanced uh, hemodynamic uh, compromised patient, then uh, more advanced hemodynamic support is going to be needed and you do what is needed, right? So obviously going all the way to VA ECMO is going to be a complicating venture. And and mostly because there are effects from ECMO that can be had on the fetus, the placenta, uh, which could be detrimental, uh, not to mention all the potentially coagulopathic effects that ECMO brings. The one thing I would say is that if we can get anatomy quickly clarified in that acute MR pregnant patient by transesophageal echo, then we could consider applying edge-to-edge repair with a transcatheter approach uh, to that patient. And that might be the preferred method uh, so that you're not dealing with uh, shock, perhaps, and just going to the primary problem and taking care of it could circumvent a lot of the mechanical considerations and, and complications that you might have. And so I would say at the very beginning, early on in the process, if the patient's hemodynamic compromised, then starting inopressor support quickly and getting them to our lab for invasive uh, hemodynamic assessment and the consideration of not uh, aggressive hemodynamic support while we 
perform assessment of the anatomy by TEE would be how I approach that so that a definitive treatment of the degenerative process can be addressed. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Luna, so much and, and Lori for your time this weekend. And that was incredibly helpful, um, our discussion on cardiovascular interventions in the peripartum period. It was great having you both. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, The role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. 
And as the science builds specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series. 